Hey everyone and welcome to Wait Long by the River, the podcast where I nailed the funny intro when we recorded the show, so I won't rehash it here. This issue we get to hear from Max Barker about the sexiest bits of old blues music, teaching theatre when you only know about 10 words of the local language, and how sometimes you really should listen to the philosophies of your 17-year-old self. Our next live show is going to be a really, really big one. We're talking to Darren Hanlon, who's been an idol of mine for years. He's charismatic, he's a wonderful wordsmith, he's been travelling the world for 15 years, and he's going to sit down and talk it over with us live at Sunbub Morning in Clifton Hill on July 2nd. For free! Look us up on Facebook or Twitter for more details, and please let us know what you think of the show. This is a bit of a long one, because Max Barker is made up of fascinating stuff, and because he plays as a piece at the end of the show, which is punk and poetic and generally just rad. So, enjoy that. Come see Darren Hanlon on July 2nd, tell us what you think of the episode on the internet, and enjoy the show. Good evening and welcome to Wait Long by the River, the podcast where we try to scratch away at the surface with our little soft archaeology brush that seems really ineffective and the next thing you know, we've uncovered an enormous mosaic of the world that was built by the people who came before the humans and uh, melted their DNA together with their own DNA to create a simplistic form of themselves that turned into humanity as we know it. Uh, I was just being told about that last night by a hippie friend Mm. who shall remain nameless. Uh, apparently they became the Assyrians, for the record. Speaking of somebody who invented culture, uh, I have a cultural historian here with me. He's a uh, a lover of the past in music. And he's also just a wonderful multi... I was going to say multi-instrumentalist because I'm a musician, but you're a multi-everythingist. Uh, dis- multidisciplinarian? Yeah, multidisciplinarian, but he won't whack you with a ruler. Uh, I'd like to welcome to the show... Max Barker. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. Uh, thanks for being the first to try out the new podcasting room. It's the... Uh, I'm the first. You are. Normally, like, cool. last time we did it around the dining table and it was mm. super chill, like mm. as we were just doing there when we were eating leftover cheese. Mm. Uh, but then I could hear myself really clearly in both mics. Mm. And so when you're editing and you can hear yourself and then also yourself like five milliseconds later in the other ear. Yeah, sure. It's maddening. Well, this room seems like it's almost purpose-built. It's a very handy little space. Right? Small, like small studio space, but I can't see what else it would be useful for. And I suppose the studio is what it's being used for. Yeah. Right now. First time. The raise funds to get you a new mic stand. Well, yeah. Uh, so far, almost no money is coming from the podcast, but the live show is like we earn whatever a normal musician would earn for the night. But I just give that to the to the people who are coming on the show. So yeah, sure. I'm hanging out for like, uh, who's going to sponsor the show? Someone mm. with an interesting curiosity. Get sponsorship from like the question mark. Is that a company as well? Like, I don't know. It's who has a, the patent? Entity. I don't know. You'd think, transport got to be open source, you'd think, question mm. mark. Because the, the original question mark, I mean, who knows where that came from, but the upside down question mark was only invented in like the 60s. Really? Yeah, the whole Spanish thing with the double punctuation. Mm. Like there was a fad all over the world for linguists to try and reinvent punctuation and re and change grammar to like improve human communication. Yeah, sure. One of the few ones that ever caught on anywhere in the Western world was this double punctuation thing. I love it. It's like it's like broadcasting the fact that you're going to ask a question at the start of the question. Right. It's so cool. Mm. I mean, we sort of do it because we lead with who, what, when, where, why. Mm. And also, it's inflection as well. Often, mm. people start a question at a higher inflection mm. to kind of. Uh, no, no. Is that true? Yeah. I think so, if you notice it. I think like, I just did it. Yeah, if you kind of want to ask it, da, 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 you know, you might raise your, vo- raise your inflection at the start of the 
which I think that's what I always assumed that the question might kind of indicated. That's really interesting. I mean, do yeah. you pay attention to that kind of thing because you do teaching stuff? Do you have to sort of uh, exaggerate those things to, with kids? It comes from acting, I think. Like, um, yeah, definitely. I really got interested in sort of ling- linguist, not linguistics, not in a kind of uh, formal sense, but definitely in a kind of practical sense when I was acting and doing a lot of script work and that kind of stuff because it's really interesting playing with sounds of words and how that affects meaning. And I think definitely that, yeah, tone of voice and how you how you talk to people. I mean, teaching is very much like acting in lots of ways, I think, um, hugely. It's a huge role you play. And it's amazing. It's sort of, I'm really, really glad I've got experience, stage experience and training and sort of a level of comfort in performing when I teach because I can slip into the thing and, the difference is what I find really fascinating about it is that um, you're kind of performing, well, performing is a weird word to use, but you're, you're choosing your tone, you're choosing your kind of how you present and how you perform in a sociological sense, both on a kind of group scale, but also on individual levels. And I think people do that all the time, you know, like if you're at a dinner party, you present yourself in one way around the dinner table and if you're in an individual conversation, you present yourself in a different way. Yeah. With teaching, especially with younger kids, um, it's very, it can become a very conscious decision you can go in front of, and it's really you're really tailoring it to like what's the best way I can use, what's the best way for me to present to get the best out of this particular interaction. You know, what does this person need from me? Mm-hmm. What's the, what do I need to present to them to kind of get the best out of this? And yeah, it's like having an arsenal of you know different different fronts, different sort of personas almost. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it was a huge huge amount of role play goes into teaching. I think. Wow, so because being a total kid amateur, <laughs> I remember when like I was used to doing that thing where you drop into a, a you you pat, not just patronize but sort of mm. try and second guess what they're going to understand and what they don't. But because you don't know kids at all, you just do what you've seen on TV or whatever. Mm. I remember seeing Chris Andrew of Fun Machine and In Camera Tonight and all that stuff. Mm. Mutual friend, friend of the show. Mm. Uh, First time I saw him speaking to kids, I was shocked because mm. he was, if anything, more adult to them than he was to us. Sure. He just gave them no leeway and he just yeah. asked them the tough questions. And if they couldn't answer, yeah. they'd either say to him, I don't understand that question and he'd do his best to explain it. Or they'd just move on because being kids, they mm. just had no interest in it. Yeah, sure. So like the really adult questions, they'd just look at him like, why would you even ask that? I mm. don't care. And they'd move on. Yeah. Either way, he's had a more meaningful conversation with the kids and then mm. kids love him. Yeah, it's that's definitely part of it. The, the the moving on thing. I think that's the big thing that I took me a while to learn. Um, and it's it's really different from that's it's so different interacting with kids, a lot of kids at a lot of a lot of the time, than it is with adults. Um, and yeah, the the thing that they don't remember and don't hold grudges, they don't kind of hold things over yet. They don't second guess things because they're just always thinking sort of present more more presently than adults would. So mm. yeah, definitely found that um, you can kind of approach things, bring them up try them drop them move on to something else whereas with a group of adults you kind of this is more of a thread that follows through an interaction or a conversation whereas mm-hmm. that stuff comes in and kids are very astute they won't let you kind of they'll remember what you say they'll remember what you sort of start off to do but if you kind of want to bring something in totally new they're open to that they're sort of receptive to that which i think is really really cool and yeah in terms of like where you pitch it it's really interesting i think it's something you got to learn the hard way of like how to kind of where to sort of place yourself in relation to the, the students, like, or, you know, any, any kids you work with, like you are the adult, but how much do you want to kind of play that or 
like I work with a lot of small group, groups at the moment. And mm -hmm. So it's just sort of five of us. And one of the things I love about, I love to do is kind of build this sense of kind of camaraderie and community, you know, and yeah. like we're actually just a little, a little gang. But I'm the boss of the gang. Because like, kids definitely act on a gang level, don't totally. they? Totally. That is the the unit, the natural unit. And they want it, they want an alpha as well, you know? And like if you can be a kind of benevolent alpha without making it really explicit, yep. that's ideal. That's a perfect thing. If you can assume that role and have them wanting you to be in that role, then it's like, and especially with a small group, it's kind of, you know, like, oh, cool. The, you know, the, 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 the gang boss is back, you know? Yeah. And they um, also they all sort of respond to you instinctively. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can sort of, Give them a bit of leeway here and there with like, you know, but knowing that, you know, you're at the end of the day, you're the one with the veto power. And does that mean that abrogates the responsibility of the group to come up? Like the group doesn't have to come up with their own alpha male. And so if you fill the alpha spot, then mm. then they can all be a bit more on the level with each other. Or is there still sort of a little leader as well? It's funny. I mean, um, much as I've just said that, I'm also really kind of wary of going too much into that, into that sort of way of thinking about things because it's... You don't really want, you want to, and once you get bigger groups as well, you don't want to um, take that metaphor too far. Mm -mm. But definitely, um, I love sort of watching the leadership and kind of, because I, I, you know, it's again, a thing from acting as well. Like, um, one of the things I really got fascinated with doing improvisation, doing performance, like theatre improvisation is a role, this idea of status and sort of power play and that every, every interaction is always, a status interaction and it's that's a constantly fluid constantly moving um dynamic that goes through every every interpersonal inter interaction that exists there's always a status interaction going on so someone is high someone is medium someone is low mm -hmm. that changes and, and shifts and that sort of determines the nature of the interaction in some way it's one lens to look at interactions in wow um and that happens constantly in every any social situation you get into mm. so being aware of that really helps as well and one of the things a good teacher can do is use that to their advantage and kind of notice those things because I mean especially once you get into a really interesting age is kind of just pubescent like kind of year five six because mm -hmm. that's really the age when the kids who are those natural leaders will start to assume that but it's often quite ham-fisted you know so you get these uh. kids who are like find this you know natural leadership qualities but they're not really good at kind of assuming without being you know a bit, of, a bit obnoxious or a bit annoying or whatever so you get to kind of try and foster that while also kind of tempering it with you know you've got to also you know and then you get the mm -hmm. kids who and that's just at the same age that kids who might be more shy are in danger of kind of you know retreating a bit so mm -hmm. you can definitely notice all those all those interactions and the kind of power plays that go on and classrooms are an amazingly fascinating microcosm of society you know there are 30 kids that are a great little you know little mini world but you definitely see yeah those power plays happen and it's really fascinating to kind of watch them and you know view yourself as some kind of like outside actor that kind of has a you know influence on them but you don't want to be too much yeah i think the alpha alpha kind of role in a bigger classroom setting i'd be kind of worried about having that as the idea but yeah you definitely see that those them assume those roles as well i'd love um, to know how they hold up over time i'd love to know how many of those alpha kids turned out to be uh like genuine leadership role people in the mm. future because i know that a lot of the the super popular kids and the kids who called the shots when I was in high school, mm. some of them went on to be just amazing, you know, goal scorers, but some yeah. of them are total deadbeats now. Mm, sure. And so I don't know if that's just because everybody just stays on the bell curve regardless mm. Mm. over time or if, you know, maybe they weren't, they didn't have what it really took underneath. Mm. I think leadership's a funny one. It's like, you know, in our society, we're kind of such a huge, huge emphasis on kind of, you know, 
being extraordinary and being spectacular and being special and that kind of stuff. And leaders, you know, leaders, quote unquote, are really lionized. Um, mm-hmm. But the way of looking at it, it's just it's just another skill you can you can be born with. You know, it's just another thing you might have. You might be a good, you know, golfer or drummer, and you also might be a good leader. And it's, mm-hmm. once you accept that, it's like, well, you can develop it or not develop it. You know, and it doesn't make mm-hmm. you like any more of a decent, any more of a better person or a more important person. But it's just you have that ability to kind of you know. And leads a very strong word, but you know, coordinate or you know, facilitate things like yeah, or just to to call shots in a tight corner, or yeah. you don't need to be in charge to be the one who's leading the meeting. Not or at all. Who's suggesting that? No. Yeah, I, I mean, look at Peter Credlin. Sure, I yeah, mean, she's sure. running the country and she's yeah, unelected. Yeah, and she's and no one would you know, and um, it's often the case. Yeah, exactly right. And I think it's a lot to do with just a, a type of emotional intelligence as well. You know, a type of a. Mm. Uh, they can read people and kind of you know, be very quick to kind of adjust themselves to kind of where that needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Sounds like you have a bit of that. Listening to you talk about like uh, intuiting social position. I mean, yeah. that kind of stuff comes very slowly to me. That's why I'm much happier one on one. As soon as I get in a group of people, I just act up sure. until I see who's laughing at my jokes and yeah, I, just, sure. I just hang out with them. And, yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I think it's together yeah kind of improvising as an actor that's such a huge part of it is playing to strengths and and group work and kind of and i'm, I'm sure it's like jam, it's like jamming musicians jamming mm-hmm. you know you're all in a room all trying to support each other make each other look good while also making yourself look good yeah um and directing as well like directing a play is that in a huge level it's like a direct I, you know i remember someone told me years ago and i really ran with this was that Director is a psychologist and a sociologist as well as anything else. You know, they've got to hmm. be on top of everyone's individual ego and also the group ego. It's um, and dealing with performers, you know, who again want to want to do well for themselves, but also want to do well for the group. It's that kind of group psychology and also work on an individual level. Mm-hmm. Which you say you got that skill, and I think it's sort of they're not completely mutually exclusive, but you know, mm. being able to be across both of them is really um. I think an important skill for anyone that kind of wants to, yeah, leads, I don't, leads on a word I really want to use, but teaching, directing their facilitatory roles, which yeah, I like. Coordinators, you know? Yeah, coordinators. Yeah, yeah, which is a, a cool a cool place to be. It's where I like to be. Definitely. So do you think, I mean, are there famous directors out there who who get by purely on the strength of their ideas and their, their plays that they come out with and don't really have those skills? Are they the ones who step on everyone's toes? And... Yeah, Because oh, you're a music lover as well, so you'd know, mm. like, the Ray Davies of this world. Sure, yeah. Yeah, like... Yeah, the Brian Wilsons and... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. People who have the magnificent ideas and pull the band around but mm. then just can't mm. associate with people effectively. Yeah. It's a classic... It's a common story, really. Like, it's very common. I think a lot of the kind of auteur-type directors you think of, like film directors, you know, your Hitchcocks mm. or your... Lars von Trier. Scorsese is... Oh, yeah, like... Mm-hmm. Well, actually, funny enough, Lars von Trier, from what I've read, is actually one of the better people working with actors, like, in terms of... Mm. That's why you get such great performances. Actually, mm. what I've read, is actually pretty good at working with people. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely, you know, you get that kind of single-minded vision, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think I've ever really had that that so much is because most of the stuff I do is more collaborative and um, it's, 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 it's more likely that I'll get stuck in the kind of trap of being too democratic and not, you know, not getting tough done that way. Um, mm-hmm. But it definitely is, definitely is a thing that happens. And I think that, um, you know, it's funny, you know, if you want to go on a really meta level, it's sort of the kind of societal thing as well of, you know, being too individual, individualistic and not kind of um, appreciating the kind of more 
sort of subtle kind of social elements of, of artistic creation, like this idea that artist has to be a kind of wholly unique creature that is sort of heaven sent and, you know, has some kind of special gift to make things mm-hmm. is just, it's not in the tradition of kind of the folk way of looking at art that I like, um, which is much more democratic and it also seems to work better as well, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, yield better results. But yeah, it's a funny one. I, the example I think of is um, Robbie Robinson and the band, you know, like he, yeah. he was sort of part of this, what I think is one of the most amazing collective of musicians ever kind of wrote this incredible music but he was the songwriter he wrote the songs which is fair yeah. enough an incredible incredible gift but mm-hmm. you read into it and he, they just detested him by the end of it because he was giving like he was giving him no sort of money and songwriting credits and it was getting more and more isolated from them and you know this kind of stuff and <sighs> yeah it's tough that way you know and it's tough to think how much is the personality and how much is the toxic culture that he was in of, yeah, of sure. the manager managerial and production and mm. people whispering in his ear and yeah. come on over here man have a cigar all that pink yeah yeah stuff. totally that's the whole the story about the band was moving to California changed everything. You know, when they moved from moved mm-hmm. from New York State to LA, you know, the kind of LA in the early mid seventies was just like mm-hmm. cocaine out the wazoo and um, <sighs> yeah, okay, yeah, changed everything. Yeah. So that's a great, uh, not so much the cocaine in LA, <laughs> but the uh, collaboration and where you came from. It's a great way to actually set out your credentials. So sure, sure. I mean, it was really it's you're probably the hardest person to introduce that I've ever had on the show. Mm. Because so many people work in a few different spaces, but they, they have one thing that is their thing and everything else mm. is a side project. But you seem to have a really broad brush when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. I mean, you, from what I know, and mm. add to the list, sure. actor, director, mm-hmm. spoken word performer, although I don't know if you call that a one-man play or a, a mm. like a slam poem or, or mm. what. I mean, it, it treads the line. Mm. Uh, musician. Uh, we were talking about recording a song later to put at the end of the podcast, which would be rad. Mm. Uh, not to mention teacher and like drama teacher and facilitator. Mm. Uh, I mean, the list goes on, right? I presume you write poetry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, you know, dabbled in writing as well. It's, yeah, like when I, I think uh, um, in terms of how it's all worked and sort of where it sits now is interesting. Um, I try and tend to think of it less in terms of sort of titles or roles is more kind of just a continuum of what I've done and what I'm doing, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's some great, great, you know, really influential kind of moments mm-hmm. early in my twenties, I working with, you know, older artists who kind of say, it's really, you know, calling yourself an artist or being an artist, being an artist comes down to your self, self definition, self identification, you know, like if you are someone who writes and you, you have the right to call yourself a writer, you know, mm-hmm. if you are someone who sings, you can call yourself a singer, you know? Yep. That really struck a chord with me. So to that end, at various times I've called myself primarily a performer or a theatre maker, and that's what I yep. did for a long time. For about four or five years, I've made theatre as a director and a performer, and also a lot of time, yeah, doing I guess what you call community theatre. So working in community theatre for a long time, which I still do. It's actually in some ways probably been the the biggest constant has been working as a community theatre facilitator, both as a performer and a director and maker on top of that yeah the other things that kind of come into it um i guess writing yeah both for performance and not and then very recently kind of music bringing that into it as well but i think the easiest sort of two terms would be performance maker and arts facilitator hmm. teacher it's funny because i you know i think the um in terms of that continuum thing looking back it's kind of that's the big big shift is when 
I went and got trained as a teacher. So that kind of changed mm -hmm. that sort of this big block of time in the last decade or so. And it's interesting. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I'm thinking about this podcast and talking about what I do. Just the, the kind of people's views on those definitions and what it means to kind of call yourself something or be called something, what those things are, because you know, I, can, I consider teaching an art form and I consider you know, teaching to be a, a form of artistry. And I think that that's not, that's not the popular perception of it, you know what I mean? Not um, in this country. I was just mm. hearing about somebody who'd been to Thailand and had been a teacher over there for a while mm. and had just loved the the community aspect of it, the mm -hmm. fact that the parents really looked up to them. Like it sort of mm -hmm. went the the government and mm. then like bankers the and then, yeah, and the priests yeah, and then yeah. teachers. Mm. So, yeah. hey, maybe just in the wrong country. I did teach in Thailand for about six months. No um, way. Yeah, yeah, a few years ago now. Before I'd got any training, I was all under the under the table. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was, yeah, crazy experience, especially, this is a huge tangent and we can get to wait this for hours, but as a white man teaching there, it was crazy. Like the amount of respect that was given to me was almost uncomfortable. You know, I was having these parents of bowing really low um and yeah i was teaching at this um quite quite expensive relatively prestigious school that i got yeah i didn't have any credentials but they needed the teacher and mm -hmm. they basically wanted me to be almost like just a, a face you know they've got we've yeah. got a we've got a white guy to teach yeah it's still hard work i still worked really hard but they paid me a lot more than they paid the Thai teachers who had like training and experience and stuff. Just was it the university education or was it just the I fact I had no that... training at all at this point. Really? No, I don't know. So this is between high school and uni or something? Yeah, I, I didn't go to uni until I was 26. I didn't start uni until oh. I was 26. So I spent a lot, did, between year 12 and uni, I did a lot of stuff. I yeah. worked, yeah. That's when I was sort of mainly making my, making my living through making theatre. Mm. And then I went overseas for a year and stuffed about and taught and stuff. Look, it's really um, tempting to go back to the beginning and work our way sure, through, but sure. it sounds like there's heaps to to yeah. go on. I mean, mm. like, where do you start? Did, did did you really get into it in high school? What's that? Sorry. To uh, what you do? I mean, to theatre or to mm. uh, expressing yourself? Or yeah, it's it's yeah. Like I said, I think it, I sort of see it as always as a continuum. But um, yeah, kind so of, where did the line start? I guess yeah. I, Actually, I started out doing a lot of visual arts. Like I did visual arts my whole life was really what I was loved, what I was into. Like I just drew on everything hmm. my whole life. I mean, there's a I remember I drew on the back of a um really important like tax document my parents had. <laughs> I wasn't very happy about that. <laughs> but um, and that was all through high school, and then high school was always theatre, uh, art, and drama. I sort of enjoyed drama and stuff about. And then I big turning point, I guess, was being involved as a participant in a community theatre project when mm -hmm. I was like 16, 17. That was a really huge turning point. The guy who was yeah, 16, 17, or maybe even younger than that, 15. Um, so, you know, more than half my life ago. And the bloke who ran it is still a close friend. I went to his wedding recently. And, Great. Um, yeah, that kind of that kind of turned me on to doing theatre stuff, all collaborative, and I learned a lot. Um, and then one of those great little sort of, you know, crossroads moments, got to the end of year 12, and I went to a very small college um, in Canberra. And I in was, Canberra, college is a year 11 and 12, right? Yes. Okay, yes. cool. I went, I went to Copeland College, which was tiny. Yeah. And I was, you know, one of, even though I wasn't really that much of a committed visual artist, mm. being so small, I was I excelled. You were, the, you were the guy with the brush. One of the guys. Yeah. Like, well, I wouldn't say I was the guy. Actually, Charlie Sofo, who's like internationally renowned artist, that's a little name drop. He was my other guy. I was still close friends. 
but yeah, just because by nature of the fact that I was interested and keen, I got encouraged to go to this to apply for Canberra School of Art, mm-hmm. which I got into. The fact that I wasn't, I'd done one painting. I got into the painting workshop. Huh. So I just kind of just snowballed into it without really thinking what I was doing, and then got to visual art school and was like, I don't, I don't want to be a visual artist. This isn't for me. Like it's fun, but you know. And then one of those great little serendipitous moments, the the day after I went into this, might have been the day or the day after I went into the workshop, about you know four months in and said, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm dropping out of art school. Mm-hmm. I was walking back to the Civic Bus Interchange and I saw an audition notice on the bus interchange and I took the number and got an audition. No way. And just acted in plays for the next six years. You know, it was like, that was the kickoff point. So That's but, great. What was the play? Uh, it was called The Wish Palace by a Canberra playwright called Kate McNamara. Uh-huh. Um, put on by the a girl named Eve Kaufman, Eva Kaufman, mm-hmm. a different last name because she's married now. And she was a Dixon College student that got the Dixon College Prize. Um, it was cool. That was like that was a world in, a way into the world of like the Bunda crew and Tom which Woodward is Nara Bunda, which is the arts college. Yes, so I should where all be, the sort of long haired guitar playing performance. That's kids correct. Went. Yeah, and, yeah. And the year under me, which I met with like Tom Woodward's and Yen Yuen's and and kind of um, you know the henchman guys who are now in bands like Munro Mulaney and uh, always. Tom Woodward really rings a bell. He's yeah, he's kind of he does something. He's an incredible, incredible gifted songwriter who's kind of hmm. made a name for himself a little bit. And he was in Melbourne playing for a long time. Now he's back in Canberra. Yeah, I think that it's important though. That I think that the community theatre stuff was really interesting because that was something I just sort of did on the side. And then once I got to kind of out of school age, like eighteen, nineteen, I started doing my own work and auditioning for stuff. And I met Dave Finnegan. And got into the, in, got it sort of into this kind of really interesting, really happening kind of independent theatre scene, sort of fringe theatre scene. It was happening. Was doing that while at the same time I was still doing this community theatre stuff and getting older and all the younger kids being there and kind of going, ah, oh, this isn't really for me. It's kind of lame. And then my director Robin Davidson, who are still very close friends, just said, well, what if I start paying you to be involved? Mm-hmm. And he was like, I can, I'll make the budget work to pay you a couple of hours a week to be my assistant. Great. Great. And then it was like a year later, Canberra Youth Theatre called and said, Robin Davidson suggested you for a position as a tutor. I've never taught anything in my life. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know you know what you're doing, just figure it out. And then it was that sort of snowballed from there, you know. And then when Robin quit that position, I became the artistic director of the company at a very young age. And I was, so I was doing that full-time. Well, not full-time, it wasn't full-time at all, but that plus all the other tutoring stuff was supporting my own fringe to practice and that kind of just kept going the momentum it was just sort of one of those ones where it's like a just a couple of right decisions and a lot of luck kind of got me kept going but wow. yeah and that kept going till mid-20s when i needed a change so i moved to melbourne and went to uni what was the fringe theater scene like in canberra Fantastic. like when you say fringe because i picture like fringe festivals mm. but oh, i suppose there was attached to the multicultural festival there was a fringe festival there was that was before i got to canberra that ended the year i got to canberra yeah i was involved in all three of them it was fantastic. It was the uh, guy who ran them was a really interesting guy, wasn't he? Dorian Gardner, yeah. Dorian Gardner, he yeah. ran Smith's alternative he's, bookshop. He's still k- kicking around, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. When I when I started getting involved, it was Dave Finnegan and Jack Lloyd and Chris, Jack's wife now. I'm a very maiden name. And they were all from Radford, and they were doing a lot of stuff um, with Bohemian, and there was really heavily supported by the Canberra Youth Theatre. So they would offer us, they would get space from there. And basically they just would hire the space a couple of times a year. 
but it was great. It was really like the, the years, the kind of really active, productive years when we were all in our early 20s before we kind of splintered off and did our own things. We just, I mean, that's what I loved about Canberra. It was small enough that you could meet a couple of directors or, or you know, professionals and then they'd, mm-hmm. they'd trust you to book a space and put a show on wow. and for not that much money. And we we're doing some crazy experimental stuff, just like really off the wall stuff. How off the wall? Um, like, exp- like experimental in the ways that we we're basically playing games on a stage in front of an audience, paying audience to come in and watch us play theatre games that we developed when we were really high, you know, like we'd come up with these crazy ideas and just like, what if we, what if we like, okay, what if we got two actors and blindfolded them and then tied one of their arms to the other one's leg and then made them run a scene? Let's try that out, you know, that, that kind of stuff. What, yeah. if he, what if he got rid of every fifth word in the sentence and made him say it backwards? Let's try that out, you know, and then like running yeah. these kind of ideas and doing really interesting trainings and learning about really interesting stuff over the sort of shop and then just getting, having a chance to try it out. Like I really, it was amazing the kind of um, education I got in mm-hmm. terms of, and a lot of it was coming straight from the community theatre stuff as well. Like there's this huge, great history of, of you know, theory and technique of, how to make plays in a community context that have a lot of great, really, you know, useful exercises that you do with groups of people to create content. Mm, and to get them and to get people involved and that kind absolutely. of thing. Like absolutely. Those games are great, right? Absolutely. And getting people to work together as well and getting the groups to cohese and that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. we were trying that stuff out as well and, you know, like had great um, opportunities to kind of put that stuff on stage, like um, working with actors and, I mean, to be a director who is, you know, early 20s and getting given a main stage to kind of, well, not early main stages, but getting a stage to getting kind of try stuff out. Yeah. Yeah, try stuff out and just getting willing actors. It was, it was, a, it was a dream. It was really, really fun. Um, and we'd try out all this crazy stuff. But yeah, there was a really little, great little nucleus for a while. And it also had this kind of sidelines of, yeah, music stuff as well. Tom was great. He used to put on a lot of kind of multi-arts nights at pubs and stuff. And there'd be, mm-hmm. you know, some monologues and some music and some circus and that kind of stuff. Um so yeah, it's hard to know how it compares to what's going on there now, but theatre seemed to be a bit more prominent. I think that music is kind of very prominent now, but there was definitely a kind of a culture of if there was a if there was a you know if there was a variety night or something, there'd be always a couple of just like straight theatre pieces as well. Like now, it's kind of a lot of music and and dance and burlesque and that kind of stuff. For that, then it would always be people getting up and trying out a scene or that kind of stuff, which is really, really cool. Yeah, and I love that stuff. And it's so mm. good to see that, that that sort of generation which preceded me in Canberra have mm. carried that on everywhere they went. I mean, mm. like, there's Mr. Phoebe, who are a great mm. example across between mm. theatre and music. Mm. And they obviously are part of all that. I mean, Adam Hadley had to be involved in that. We stuff went to school point. together, Hadley and I. So, yeah. yeah. And his, I mean, his, the few plays he's written, I just mm. love yeah. to watch. Yeah. And then you've got, I mean, David Finnegan, He's mm. in a band with mm. his brother, yep. Fossil Rabbit, or oh, no, right. Finnegan, Finnegan and brother. brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then you've got mm. people like L. I mean, did you get with yeah. that circus crew? Did you get yeah. in with like L. Kirschbaum and yeah, his yeah. sister and all those people? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those people are, are now really successful. Really high circus levels. people. Yeah, yeah. I went totally. and saw Left recently, which was Me too. It was incredible. Tom, Tom Davis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which was an amazing show. Mm. Uh, he'll be a future friend of the show for sure. I can't wait. I can for listen to sure. him talk about juggling for an hour. He's amazing, yeah. I don't expect our studio audience to, <laughs> but uh, because there is, we're recording in front of a live audience yes. right now. Um, I guess. Yeah, hello. I guess one little thing I wanted to say about that crew is this really... All the things. Yeah, it's an amazing. amazing feeling that I've talked to Dave about is, and it's, you know, I'm not, I'm, I, hate, I hate to say this kind of stuff because I'm only 31. I'm, I've got a long, long, long... long I'm ahead of me to do cool stuff, but having 
done this stuff for a decade, which is just by virtue of the fact of how old I am, I have been doing, and working with this great little nucleus of people back then, seeing them all go off and do stuff, it's like, yeah, something like seeing Ting Left by Tom Davis, for example, or mm-hmm. hearing Tom Woodward's new album, which is like really, really shit hot. It's actually like you feel proud of these people, and that's a really yeah. cool feeling. Like without a doubt. And it's like it's at first it's like this is how how can I feel? I wasn't involved in this, but like you know I've watched you work. Like I've watched Tom Davis do Circus for years and years and years, and watch him get better and better and better and better. And it's mm-hmm. really great. Um, and it goes to show just like the kind of great scene that we had, and I'm sure still exists in Canberra now. You know, which is what I really got out of Left. I got that's what I got out of it was it was about artistic communities. Yeah, yeah it was the story of of trying to excel in that area mm, mm. so what's the dif- looking back what's the difference between the people who you look at now and are filled with pride for their achievements and mm. the people who disappeared that you don't interesting isn't it because uh, it's it's sort of um yeah it's something i've struggled with in the last few years because when i went to uni or well, i went overseas for a year or under a year then i came back to canberra then i moved to melbourne and went to uni and I made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to do as much art um, because mm-hmm. I was really stressed. I kind of, and it's something that, that happens to people and it's you know, true. I got really, really stressed out and I wasn't handling it very well. And I was kind of just over it. I was just so tired of being really poor and really, you know, stressed out. I like, I'll go to uni, I'll get a degree and I'll, I'll do stuff down the track, you know. And mm-hmm. that didn't last very long. I got started getting involved in stuff straight away anyway. Yeah. But, At uni? Um, no, just re- like a, another great serendipitous moment. My very first night of moving to Melbourne, I ran into a girl I hadn't seen in five years who I did theatre with on, on Smith Street and she's like, I'm yep. doing a play, I need an actor. So like, <laughs> yeah, right, it's crazy. You um, try to get out but they pull you yeah, back in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They pull me back in. <laughs> um, but, and then through her I met um, uh, Simbleen Bueller from West End's Youth Arts which where I still work now which is a community theatre in Footscray. What a great name. Hold on, what was it? Cymbeline Bueller. Oh, fantastic! She's an incredible, that's a pleasure, incredible person. She's um, Cymbeline. Cymb- I know, right? Wow. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, I um, wrote a poem about that name once. I, I did this one of the first shows I did in Melbourne with her Western Edge Theatre. This crazy site-specific show in Flinders Street. I can't, I can't even, I can't even explain the idea of the show. It's so weird and bizarre. But I played this like, uh, sort of spiritual kind of esoteric new agey guy and one of the things I did at the end it was like sort of installation performance I'd have the thing where I'd sit down and people come up and I'd write poems for them in the space of five minutes and I usually go off like a little fact about them or whatever and I wrote a one for Cymbeline about her name and what the name came from it's this old English name about the god of the god of summer and the god or the god of winter or something and I wrote this mm. little poem about the um all the four seasonal gods meeting up once a year hmm. and like yeah it was really nice it's a beautiful name um wow how, do you reckon there's a chance, a small chance, not to put a, a poll over that achievement of yours? Do you reckon there's a chance that uh, that's always the relationship that people have with her and that being handed a poem and it being about her name, mm. do you reckon there's a chance that she looked at it and went, no, not my mm. name again. What well, about my scar on my face? Yeah, or, no. yeah. Well, it's uh, going to be tough. It is, yeah. And it's funny, like it's talking before about reading people, you know, like, um, I think that yeah, improvising, improvising to parameters. And I watched Nick Ladovic do this very, very well as well. When he writes songs in, write yeah, songs in, in real minutes, time, yeah. it's about actually, then it's the same with people who you know, do a caricature of someone or mm-hmm. like you ask them questions and, and 
this is what you do in playback theater, which is what I do now as well. And it's what's a huge skill is you, you're not just listening to what they're saying, but you're reading other things from what they're giving you as well, you know? Mm -hmm. um, how willing so. they are to be caricatured, for example. I mean, how sensitive they are versus how thick-skinned they are. And, Absolutely. And when yeah. you ask them questions, what, how do they react and what ways they react? What, what are they kind of giving lots of information about? And uh -huh. it's the skill you have as an interviewer, you know, you, you're listening for those points where they get really animated and you, you, you're checking in your mind, I'll come back to that moment. Mm -hmm. If someone kind of trails off, you leave that behind, you know, there's no point yeah. talking about that. Um, and I remember she told me when, when she did the poem, she was saying how, because I asked her, what do you want the next year to be? What's your, what's your hope? And she said, I want whatever kind of what it was. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> not important. I know it's something like, it's something like how I want. Because she trailed off. Yeah, is, no. that, is that the lesson? No, it was, yep. so it's like four and a half years ago. Oh. Um, but it was something like, you know, I want the new year to hold more than the last year or something. And mm. that just seemed like a nice metaphor with, you know, the changing of the seasons and that kind of stuff. And and um, and she had actually, I said, well, what's your name mean? And she kind of went always really proud things. Like, well, actually, and she really uh -huh. enjoyed telling me the story, you know. Great. Like, so to have it reflected um, back again is a... Yeah, tying yeah. those things together, you know. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like me with my hair. Sure, tying you it know? back together. I've no, <laughs> no, you know, like you have crazy hair and people mm. are always pointed out and it's always the thing mm. that they go to. But like, I just never get sick of preening about it. Man, when, the I, thing. when I had my epic beard a few years ago, it was like, I don't know, three, four inches long. Oh yeah, bearded too. I haven't seen, look, that's how short a time I've known you. It was, I, I haven't had one, I haven't had it for a, probably a year. It was huge. And I, I couldn't go to a pub without drunken men wanting photos. It was weird, oh. man. It's 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 kind of fun for a while, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Is. I remember the first person who did that was Ramsey Nuttall on oh, yeah. Fun Machine. Yeah, great friend of the show. Yeah. Uh, he dyed his hair blue. He just ceased to be a person. Yeah, sure. And at work and at home, mm. he was always this blue hair guy. Mm. And people started referring to me as friend of blue hair guy, <laughs> and that hurt me. I can't imagine what yeah. it was like being him. Mm. And he lasted maybe three months, and he sure. dyed it black. Sure, he was just he didn't want. Oh. Yeah. This is so funny. I've something I've had the similar things many times. Like my glasses now. Whenever I don't have my, because I, I will not wear them one day or one day go. I've got very and they're large distinctive glasses. glasses. How would you describe yeah. them? They're, they're big. They're large, kind of square frames, kind mm -hmm. of tortoise shell. Eighties, like eighties yeah, kind of, news presenter. Yeah, almost like um, you know, those are uh, that English health service kind of style. Yeah, um, nice. Or, you know, no matter which direction you look, you'll be looking through glass. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of them. I, I, I um, describe it as one of the startup employees of Apple, Apple Mac Corporation. Mm. Like one of those guys. Spot on. Yeah. What's the name um, of the guy who didn't make it? Bell. Because there's, you know, there's, there was Steve Jobs mm. and he was working away in a garage with this other guy. Mm. And the two of them invented it together. And then I know there's people, anybody listening to this is going to be saying it's mm. Alan something. It's not, it's not, it's not, it it's not like Wachowski or something. It's not like she could... That could be it. Who knows, right? Um, That's the point. No, exactly. Who's that guy? Yeah, totally. him? One of the second place guys. Yeah. I mean, you'd Garfunkel think... Garfunkel and Oates kind of thing. Who's Oates? Oh, uh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. But Garfunkel remained famous in the face of the Simon and Garfunkel thing. He did, Even though yeah. he was just a backup guy. He was, I think... With he, a doctorate in maths. He was a smart guy. You write the songs and the melodies and the lyrics and do the majority of the singing mm -hmm. and just, I'll back you up. And yep. we'll share equal credit. Well, when you're on a good thing, you don't want to... No, like, right. is it's worth putting your differences aside, right? Yeah, yeah. You know. I think a step above that was um, Eric Clapton and George Harrison, who yeah, were really good friends yeah. and jammed together, but like yeah. they each slept with the other guy's yeah, wife for a while. Yeah. And then in the end... What, well, good. 
did they end? At least one of them married the the other guy's wife. I don't know if they both swapped. George married Layla eventually. Oh, sorry, did Eric marry Layla eventually? That was what that was what Layla was about. Was mm-hmm. was George Harrison's wife. And Lemon Song in Led Zeppelin. That was really? written about how Robert Plant was sleeping with Jimmy Page's wife. Yeah, right. Well, it's uh, funny though, is that Eric, isn't it? Because like, same with the Stones. Well, this idea that one level they're kind of all free love and that kind of stuff. Another level, they're all people of a generation that were born in the 40s. Like, they're not going to just suddenly yeah. change all their socialization overnight. And I, I'd, I'd sort of just, I've just decided that I'm just not going to care if like my favorite artists are assholes because it's just, it's just too much. <laughs> like, just, no, that's you right. You can't, you can't pay attention. Like Ender's no. Game is definitely one of my favorite books ever. And sure. I read about Orson Scott Card and found out that he's just the worst. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. worst guy. Yeah. So look, still love the book, just can't pay attention to that anymore. I noticed that, um, what's his name, Patton Oswalt, who's notorious for shooting his mouth off and saying stupid things on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think it should affect you. you. know, If you like him, you like him. Like, Who cares that he's a bit of an idiot and says mm-hmm. insensitive stuff? Like, It shouldn't affect you if you like his comedy. It's my opinion. He recently mm-hmm. kind of announced he was going to not be online for like four months. Just like, Great call. John Mayer did the same thing. Mm. John Mayer had a couple of disastrous interviews. So Kay- Kayla's got the opposite opinion. It'd, okay. be really, ugh, it'd be really interesting to have her here for this because she, every time I espouse that view, she says, no, because who a person is informs their art. It underpins their art. Their art yeah. is an expression of themselves. Even yeah. if they're trying to write from somebody else's character mm. or even if it's nonfiction, mm. it's still who they are. Mm. And once you learn that, mm. if you... If you say you learn that about Patton Oswald and then you mm. laugh along to all his comedy, mm. some of that stuff goes into your brain. Sure. Some of what he's laughing at, you begin to laugh at. Sure. And it's really interesting actually coming from the other way, from the creator's point of view. You'll have noticed myself trying to write songs, being someone that's come to it so late in the game, having this sort of huge interesting kind of idea of the craft of it and kind of the, the, the socio kind of I say the word political kind of context of it. Like I, I find myself second guessing myself and, and ch- checking myself in the lyrics that I write a lot. Like, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, to be like, to not be misogynist or to not absolutely. use ebonics or, cause I'm always trying to get rid of the negative exactly those kind of, of things. Yeah. Exactly those kind of things. Like, and it's funny. You think, I think, I think of myself at the stage where most musicians who are my age and who I like, probably out when they were 19, you know, like you're just busting out kind of three chord stuff on bar chords and learning how to write songs. Yeah. Um, and you, you are writing, you know, like baby girl, this kind of stuff. But I find myself checking myself and going, oh, actually try and be a bit smarter than that. Try and be a bit like, you, you know, you're more aware now. Like and it makes for, I think it makes for far more interesting art anyway. And you know, I think it makes for more, more interesting kind of ways to express yourself. Yeah. I think that's, that's I think about music, especially in rock and roll, especially in looking at the Stones and Led Zeppelin and, and Bob Dylan and that kind of stuff there. Like it or not, that whole tradition is a massively masculine, you know, not very woman-friendly tradition. If you know mm-hmm. of blues, of blues writers and that kind of stuff, like yeah, you don't sing about how much you respect your wife, do you? That's not what was done. Like man, when you start listening to, because Jack White got me into listening to the twenties, thirties, forties blues mm-hmm. men, and some mm-hmm. of the stuff they write is intense. <laughs> Fully, like beating your wife up, like oh, beating a woman up graphically, all the time. like mm-hmm. like I'm gonna push your face into a barbed wire fence, that mm-hmm. kind of yeah, thing. Fully, like, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I do. I do also love the the stuff that's uh, the really really smutty stuff. Like, yeah, is it, is it Minnie Ripperton? I think her name is. Like, she's just like that's this stuff that's really just the lewdest lewdest stuff. It's fantastic. So you managed to survive, poor, but you managed to get by mm. from twenty twenty one to like twenty six, mm. just being a theater dude. 
27? Mm. Those are the right years? Yeah, well, so more like 19 to 25, something like that. That's crazy. Yeah. So how do you... How, do, you do you just go real cheap? Just eat rice for five yeah, years? Yeah, I used to live on $30 a week spending money. Um, so I'm very generous. Mm. I live with a very generous man who uh, supported me. He was my first housemate and kind of supported me financially. When it was mm-hmm. got tough, my parents... Uh, they're definitely generous. I went, like, wasn't like living off them, but if I got stuck, I'd, you know, every, every once or twice a year, I'd be able to kind of you know, help me out, that kind of stuff. But, um, still all the washing powder from the yeah, laundry, that kind of thing. Yeah. But you learn to get by. Like, it's, it's funny, you know, like I'm, I'm 31 now and I'm, I'm still used to living on no money. Like, it's, mm. it's do you feel rich now that you have like a part time job? Uh, I've been richer, that's for sure. Like, I've, <laughs> I've worked probably, I've worked on a decent wage a couple of times in my life. I've either saved the money up and gone overseas or I've just spent it all on beer, you know, one of the two. Yeah, I'm more of a in the latter camp. Me too. That's my style. But it's funny, you know, like I think it's, if once you get past a certain age, like at the time, I didn't know, like when you first moved out of home, when you first moved out of home, if that's what you go into, it's just what you know, you know, like, and I could always pay rent and then everything else was just fun. It was just like having, I was having such a blast, such a blast all the time. And I was getting really mm-hmm. high and really drunk all the time and making heaps of art and it was fantastic. And then all my friends were around. And I lived in a filthy pigsty and just <laughs> ate, you know, couscous and smoked bongs and had the best time of my life for like mm-hmm. years. Um, and then you go away and things change. Why not? You grow up and you do other things and go to uni. Once I was at uni, it's like, okay, now I'm on, I'm on like this is a different situation. I'm never on the, I'm never on the dole. And now it's sort of like, it almost becomes this weird sort of point of pride where it's like, okay, this is what it's like to be past the age when most people have kind of not doing this anymore you're still doing it for one reason or another. So how do you do this with as much dignity as you can? Because we don't live in a world where you're encouraged to not have lots of, or like not seek or have lots of money. Like that's- mm-hmm. Oh, world. it's hard to have dignity without the trappings of, like even not just wealth, but like a decent outfit. The world isn't 100% geared around having people who have money. It's really like a, being, having no money. I remember I had to come back from Newcastle to Melbourne once and I missed a flight um, and I had $20. And I had to survive a day um, getting from, uh, less than that, getting from Newcastle to Melbourne with airport transfers and buses and taxis and stuff. And I couldn't eat like the whole day. And I was like, this is, the world is not designed. People haven't got any money. Like you're mm. actually, you're screwed. Especially when you have any kind of adversity, you can sort of live on the line. You can mm. have rice when you're just in Canberra doing your thing. Mm. As soon as you need to get from one place to another in a hurry, mm. or as soon as all the public transport's done for the night, but you mm. didn't pack anything cold, like warm enough, it's, yeah, you can't get a cab because totally, you don't have any money. Totally. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think in some ways it starts to it starts to kind of inform your view of the world a little bit as well. You know, like mm-hmm. there's a great line from a mountain goat song, which is um, never forget what it felt like to live in rooms like this. I think it's really important like you don't mm-hmm. being an artist not being an artist or making art not making art at different points of your life like it was weird at first kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier going back from finishing uni and going okay well how do I how do I get back into do I want to get back into kind of making more art or do I want to do that and it was a bit of a struggle but then it was kind of just realizing and remembering that I've never really seen a differentiation you know like trying to hold on to those like those kind of idealistic ways of looking at um, yourself as an artist and a person in the world Mm-hmm. you had when you were 19 you know that like i don't need money i just need to like be, do what i love you know and like yeah. circumstances change massively over time and the the majority of people find ways to kind of get more comfortable more stable and that kind of stuff but through no fault of your own you might not that might not happen to you, you might you know mm-hmm. circumstances might go in a way that you're still kind of living the same lifestyle 
as you were when you were younger. Yep. And that can either kind of be really crushingly awful or you can kind of go, hold on, if I can just remember and maintain what was good about what I, why this was working for me in that age. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes down to this, you know, I, almost an ideology question, you know. Um, it's like that shit that, you know, I, I was really, really massively, massively, massively influenced and in, informed by, by punk when I was younger. It was a huge deal for me, a massive deal for me. Um, real game changer in many ways. And that's the whole thing about it is that kind of, you know, that, that staying true to something or rather, and it's always very kind of vague and fluid what that is, but, you know, not yeah. selling out to that. And I think that I would never kind of, you know, I'd never kind of be that hard out about it. But I think if you apply it to your own life of kind of, you can maintain a level of integrity just by kind of remembering what this means to you, you know, and I long ago kind of gave up the idea of making art to kind of be known for it or kind of be successful or kind of, famous but like this is yep. what gives my life direction and meaning so i can find ways to do that i don't need to have any training i don't need to have any money i don't need to have any kind of you know validation for it it's like i'll just i'll just keep doing it you know and that's sort of yeah. what i thought when i was 17 and i still think it now you know and, and what's great is that you know the older you get if you can kind of hold on to that and what i find really fascinating is that you sort of what you do if you kind of just keep believing in that one idea you have what you do ends up confirming it you know what i mean like i never expected to go into kind of doing all this community theater with different communities and i've traveled around the world doing making theater with different groups of people in different circumstances doing amazing stuff and it's all just kind of backed up this sort of thing i've figured out and i kind of assumed when i was young you know that like no the most important thing is like you just like you do what you feel is right you do what you feel is is true and important and you know Mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you haven't got a big house and you know a lot of money and a car and that kind of stuff you just got to hold on to what you want to do and then when circumstances change yeah it's cool to be able to hold on to that you know that's why I love I still love you know rock and roll and the kind of ideals and the aesthetics of ideology behind you know punk rock and rock and roll because that's it is you know in a, in a kind of um, in a secular individualized world it is one of the things you can actually have as a, a bit of a philosophy you know mm-hmm. um you know people have written books about that being a way of viewing the world you know yeah yeah it got very deep all of a sudden but yeah that's great it's, has your I, I mean it's great to hold on to the ideology from when you were 19 and to remember what it was that drove you about it then when you're in a moment of trying like a moment of difficulty now mm. what happens when as you said circumstances change mm. have you reached have you ever reached a point where the circumstances have changed uh, about what it was that you wanted out of life and the two have conflicted. For example, Mm. you said you lived in a crazy pigsty and I know you don't Mm. anymore, Mm. but does that make it hard to hold down a relationship? Because I mean, love matters to everyone, especially Mm. rock and roller. That's part of the ideology Mm. is that love conquers everything and love Mm. is, you know, all you need is love. Mm. So is it hard to hold on to love when you don't have the trappings of, comfort mm. to offer well i think that actually what's what's nicer is that um like i said it's sort of if you if you can hold on to it in some way or another you find that you're not alone in that way of being or thinking and so life changes along with you like it's funny i live with people i live with now i was friends with when i was 17 we were in a punk band together when we were 17 my friends now what was it called four foot eight was the name of the band because our guitarist was four foot eight high that's reasonable and she's um, tiny that's tiny she's a she's, she's a small girl wow cool it's like um, mojo juju yeah. Another great band led by a person who's probably four foot eight. Yeah, so I live with I live with the four foot eight person and the bassist in that band now. We're very good friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were seventeen. We were just fucking tearaways. We were just crazy. We were just like 
playing gigs at World News Centre and smashing tequila and being idiots. Great. And, you know, I had like dreadlocks and mohawks and stupid. And now a long time after that, we're studying and doing, you know, PhDs and masters and working and that kind of stuff. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I, met, I mentioned the other night that um, we're all drinking a lot of tea. It's wintertime, you know, and mm-hmm. we're sitting down in the kitchen going, oh, so what do you, what do you think? I'm, I'm really drinking a lot of peppermint at the moment. Peppermint's not too bad, but I'm more of a chamomile person. Do you uh-huh. like honey in your chamomile? You know, I sort of remarked, I was like, <laughs> if our 17-year-old selves could see us right now, they would be disgusted. They would be completely like, appalled, you know? Yeah. But it, it does change. I think that you just got to trust that like you will evolve in such a way that you're not going to, you know, they're not going to be completely isolated because people still go with you, you know? And mm-hmm. it's interesting. Um, yeah, that's interesting a point about, about love. I mean... Uh, because it can be, you know, it can be a worry of like having to tick a certain number of boxes to be attractive or available to somebody, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's not been my experience, I guess. But I think that yeah, in terms of the way you live and the lifestyle you live, like it definitely, definitely evolve, you know. And I think um, even if it's not evolving in the way that other people kind of, or the majority of people do necessarily, mm-hmm. um, it's still a, it's still an evolution. And I think that that's that's only a really important thing is that you're growing. You know, I could definitely live in a house like I used to live in, but uh, that's right. But you, you do your standards just slowly creep up, right? You, could it, yeah. never, you couldn't drink the cheapest box of goon anymore, yeah. but you could yeah, one step up, still all right. Exactly, yeah. you know, exactly. Um, yeah, you just gotta yeah gotta gotta trade up or at least across as long as you don't trade down. You know. Yeah, that's right. Always moving sideways. Someone said that to me recently. He's mm. like, you don't need to keep moving up, up, up all the time. That's mm. that's for the 80s. Yeah. What people do these days is sideways. Yeah, sure. We're a, a generation of crabs. That's great. Yeah, like that. that works for me. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, Generation of Crabs sounds like a good 17-year-old punk band name. Sure, yeah. Yeah. I heard these kids on the, if quick aside, I heard the kids in the tram once, like 17 old private school boys. Mm-hmm. They were discussing their band name, and they had, oh, they had a cracker of a name. It was that's amazing. A fraught conversation, man. They came up with one. I want to steal it. And I'm, I'm to whoever these people are. If you have this name, it's all yours and use it. But they said, "Playing with traffic." Ooh, that's a great name. I thought it was a cracker of a band name. Yeah, that's got legs, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, <sighs> not playing in traffic. That'd be too. Mm-mm. That'd be too obvious. Yep. And with traffic. Yeah, with traffic. Yeah. And the other guys uh, are like, oh, it's stupid. I'm like, no, it's the winner. No, no, no. Yeah, you got to lean over at that point and be like, yeah. I'm the voice from the future. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's me. Oh, Joe Oppenheimer's been holding on to what I think is a cracker for years as well. But he just keeps he keeps refusing to name a band this name. Mm. And then I keep wanting to steal it. And he gets very upset. Mm. The Diamond Hearts Club. Nice. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah, okay, I think sure. it has levels. I think it's mm. good. Like it, the, the whole hard-hearted thing mm. as well and the, and then obviously the card thing. That's very clever. It took me a second. Mm. Mm. It's a good one. And it looks mm. like the logo of it could be like I've, I've idly sketched the logo in lectures and stuff. Like it's, That's cool. I've a lot. But he just won't give it to me. I have to join a band with him. Sure. That's his lure. Uh, look, the thing that's sticking in my mind that I want to get more out of that we haven't yet is teaching in Thailand. When I first went over there, you yeah, mean? yeah. Um, it's a funny story. Uh, my ex, at the time I was living with someone, she was going to France, and I couldn't afford to go to France, so she's like, "I'm going to France." I'm like, well, I can't afford to go to France. She's like, "Well, I'll see you in six months." Mm-hmm. She took off. I was like, "Well, I'm not going to stick around Canberra, so I've got the money to go to Thailand, um, which was a lot cheaper than going to France." Still is significantly cheaper than going to France, um, and I was just like, it was ridiculous. It's funny. I've been overseas since then and been far more paranoid after having. Being more prepared and having more money, far more worried about you know dying than I went over there with no preparation and no money. Going, I'll be fine. 
yeah, in a couple of years, yeah, you know, right. had yeah. like, you know, 20 bucks in my pocket, not quite, but, um, yeah, I just sort of, uh, ran out of money and so looked around and it was weird, man. It was, I had a weird time. I ended up living with this bloke who was like this beautiful man, Thai guy, but shifty as all fuck and always had some scheme or another going and mm-hmm. got into some pretty interesting situations. I was, he was putting me up. So I you know, can't fault it. He put me up in his parents' house and I was living with him Wow. in exchange. And he was teaching me Thai as well in exchange for me, no way. me teaching for me. He had, he had his own little yeah. private school. So on weekends I'd teach classes and then hmm. in the week we'd go about his weird businesses and stuff and like some weird shonky stuff like with like, you know, criminal elements going on occasionally. Cool. Like, yeah, some like... I don't know how much to reveal, but uh, it's a long time ago now. I'm sure we'll be fine. But uh, yeah, some pretty hairy things. There's a statute of limitations on all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, see, again, Kayla, lawyer, should be great to have mm, you. Yeah. So in the vaguest sense, are we talking shonky like just casual fraud? Or are we talking shonky like a truck pulls up and the thing opens and they say, get all this stuff off quick? Or... It, was, it was more like I was just driving around with him all the time. Like, oh, that's and So that's he'd be like, we need, to, we need to pick up my friend. Okay, cool. Pick up his friend and then like go and park somewhere. I drive for ages in this sort of tense silence with the other guy. Mm-mm. The guy would get out and go into a room or like a building. And they'd be really tense, tense silence. And the guy, because Thailand's not a, not a violent country. Everything's done. So, so polite, right? Mm-hmm. To a but fault. Even the crime. It's just like, yeah. And then, then the guy would come out walking relatively fast and getting like, okay, we're going out and we'll drive off. And I would know mm. what, something had just gone on. We did transport a gun once. And what was amazing was that uh, one of his best friends was this cop this um police policeman mm-hmm. and it's just so corrupt like remember we were driving we got, i was in the back seat of the car and he picked up this guy because hello sorry car and just, can you go up <laughs> he put in this thing it was an enormous handgun wrapped up in like a towel next to the seat next to me like we should drop this off somewhere i'm like okay wow we're driving along like a desert eagle or something is that like like a pistol but really big i, I don't know what that means but it was, oh, it was, cool. a, it was a big gun you know yeah. wrapped up <laughs> but he got this call and he's like yeah oh hey how's it going yep okay no worries and did this massive detour and he's like oh that was the cop he just said don't drive that way because the cops are there so great um yeah but um yeah so i worked with him and he got me a job and stuff but it was, it was weird i was living by myself in this really 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 um really isolated place Made some good friends, a few Thai friends and a few other, mm. um, a couple of other English speakers. But an isolated um, part of Bangkok. No, outside of Bangkok, about forty minutes out of Bangkok, forty mm-hmm. minutes south of Bangkok. Yeah, a place called Samut Sakorn. Samut Sakorn, which is a fishing port and a smell like fish everywhere. And it was, mm-hmm. it was one of maybe three white people in the whole place, the whole town or city, whatever you want to call it. So you run um, into them pretty quickly, like yeah, to get to know them. For, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. My best mate was this guy Henry or Harry. Sorry, he's a good guy. Mm. Well, no, another whole story, but um, <laughs> yeah, but lasted there for about eight months and then came back. But since then, I've been, and it was funny because I went over there and I had people in Australia who were like, oh, you should go do some teaching and stuff. There's some theatre companies you can work with, and again, I'm just I've had so such great luck in my life. Like I went there and serendipity, you know, like you just got to make your mm-hmm. own luck. You got to kind of take the opportunities that come. I went there and just wanted to say yes to stuff, and next thing you know, you're transporting arms. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. One of the first nights I was in Bangkok, I saw a sign for the Bangkok Fringe Festival, which was like a, no. a, a photocopied A4 flyer, like pasted up. It wasn't a very big deal. I'm like, oh, that's that so cool. cool. That, that's a big deal to me, though. That's awesome that that's happening. Well, I went there and I, I looked it up. And I went to the place. It was just an incredible theatre. It was a beautiful theatre. It was a big outdoor place. All these like lakes and ponds going through it and huge big amphitheatres and all that open and stuff. 
Mm -hmm. I just sort of rocked up one day and was like, is there any shows happening tonight? I was like, oh, really? There's just workshops happening. Mm -hmm. But being a white man in Thailand, you get given this like access all areas pass. Like, oh, you must be, you must be a big deal. Come in, come in. Let's make no. a tea, make a coffee. It's crazy. They go in, you walk around and you just, hello, They're like, come in, come in. You must be important because you're white. <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's very strange. But Oh, uh, if only they knew. Right? right. But I ended up performing at the Bangkok Fringe Festival with these international artists. Oh, like, you want that on your resume. I went in That's and great. they were like, who are you? And I saw a theater maker from Australia. Come in, join the workshop. You know, these <laughs> like really, really high level, like um, Singaporean dancers and like amazing people. And I ended up doing a couple of days workshop. I'm like, can you come back tomorrow night for the performance? And I ended up performing on, and there was this, it was all a big improvisation jam, which is what I used to love, mm -hmm. like impulse, impulse improvisation, which is what I used to really get into. And they were all dancers, so they had all these, these skills that I didn't have and I still don't have, like of like contact impro and that kind of stuff, which I mm -hmm. couldn't do. I was like, what can I bring to the table? Mm -hmm. um, so I was like, can, do you, can I do vocal stuff? Like, yeah, yeah, sure. So I ended up getting a microphone just reading Shakespeare. Like reading, there's like all this Thai crowd didn't really understand English. I was just like yeah. reading Shakespeare as like rhythm, like beat beat poetry kind of stuff, just reading the words and kind of playing with the words and stuff. And then uh, Far better to die. Yeah, exactly. Slings of arrows of fortune. Yeah. yeah. Occasionally kind of in like, just come in and roll around the floor a bit and then get off and it was really super, super, super fun. <laughs> the same stuff you were doing in the theatres where you're like, oh, I've got to make up a game and do it in front of a room full of people. Exactly. And, well, and it'll work. Improvisation, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then I ended up teaching, doing some workshops in Laos, um, walk into like a community theatre space, which is like a, a youth theatre space. Hmm. Um, I'd been told about by a friend of mine a guy I used to work with like yeah I've worked there before go and give me a resume and tell me you're interested in more volunteering mm -hmm. I walked in thinking I'm going to be in this, in this city for a week or two like maybe I can come in next week and do a day workshop or whatever and yeah. I walked in to the office and I was like hello and I'm an artist from Australia wondering if I, I'd like to volunteer um, you know and here's my resume they didn't look at the resume they said oh well they're just next door just go next door a white man there's like here's a room full of children go for it go for your life I was like, no that's weird, you know, but, um, ended up, yeah, running a, and I just, I don't speak any loud. Can you write down the words for stop, go, run, walk, sit, yeah. quiet, and, you know, a few other things and walked in this room full of adorable Lao children. I was like, we're going to write down the, the Lao word for drama and like, and game. And just, yeah, it was, it was wild. Really, really fun. Wow. So that's, I mean, that's a drama game for yourself because you've got to, how do you mm. run a drama game with eight mm. words in a language you've never spoken before mm. yeah. with a group of strangers? Yeah. And it works. Yeah. Me and Dave Finnegan once did a drama workshop for um, a group of adults, sort of 30 plus who were blind. Um, cool. It was beautiful. It was amazing. But that's the kind of thing where it's like those limitations, which I, you know, like, Improvisation is fantastic, but improvisation is far more interesting and exciting when you put a bunch of limitations on it. Mm -hmm. you know? um, yeah, it was one of the best experiences I had working with him as a, as a facilitator. Anyway, it was really beautiful. Like, how can we, what can we get out of this? You know, um, and I've definitely worked with a lot of a lot of times with with translators as well, and that's really interesting. And mm -hmm. because I think that yeah, the the it stops you from kind of getting to. Uh, carried away with you know being the being the uh, actual focus in the room as a facilitator, you know. Yeah, like, it, it it distributes the authority a bit, mm, doesn't it? And when you can't just go uh, 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 and make the calls constantly, mm -hmm. you got to go through a second. You you got to consider what you got to think say. ahead. You're yeah. Napoleon. Yeah. You know, you're giving an order, and then 15 minutes later, you're seeing a battalion move. Right. Mm, yeah. Cool. Yeah. You've thrown out. You've casually thrown out so many terms attached to improvisation that I've never heard before. You said impulse 
Impro mm -hmm. and Contact Impro. Contact Impro. Mm -hmm. And you said one ages ago that was very active, like explosion or oh, some other great verb that I filed away, but I lost it. Yeah. Are these all like competing schools or is it a, is there a history of it that one follows after another? Or, I mean, do you pick up a book one day and go, oh, contact, that sounds cool. And then you learn all about that or. It's, yeah, more of a bit of both really, I guess. Um, I don't know the history of Impro pre kind of the 60s, but there's, and this is probably really, really, really basic um telling of it but as far as i'm aware the, the two main schools and you can wear impro now is all theatrical impro talk about impro now there's kind of two main schools there's the kind of whose lines anyway school mm -hmm. uh theater sports school yep um which is, is that second city and that kind of thing yeah like exactly will ferrell steve carell yeah yep. which came about in the 70s late 70s mm -hmm. mid 70s i'm maybe wrong so who was the back big stars called, back then like steve martin that kind of person well, it was invented by a book in what well, invented but really sort of codified by a guy called keith johnston mm -hmm. funny enough actually as a and uh, well you know i don't know no doubt too hard but it, um there's an interesting link to kind of community theater he was interested in 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 um, community theatre, he's interested in applied theatre mm -hmm. and using it as a way. Like he, you know, it's like it's like a lot of these great thinkers. Once it got popularised, he was like distanced himself from it. He's like, this is becoming the problem with that kind of improv is it's very good for comedy. Yeah, it's very verbal, very kind of wit based. But mm -hmm. it wasn't his original idea. His original idea was to use it as a way of. of facilitating sharing of ideas and kind of, you know... And role-playing yeah, issues. And exactly. Kind of and, and, you know, using it as a kind of very democratic way of, of making work and yeah. and not actually not favouring, you know, high sort of uh, performance skills, that kind of stuff, which mm, I, think I, it has, I think it has its place. I love good theatre sports, but oh, yeah. it was, it's definitely been taken in a direction that kind of is very gag-based and that kind of stuff, which mm -hmm. is... Yeah, it's going for a laugh. Yeah, which is fine, but that's not the original idea. And then... But then some of those ideas were sort of the same time as Augusto Boal and, you know, uh, that kind of thing in the in Latin America was doing um, very, very politically motivated um, community theatre work, which used a lot of improvisational techniques um, to, to create work, which is still used now. And that's kind of explicitly um, political. Uh, it was theatre of the oppressed and that kind of stuff. And hmm. coming from a very Marxist point of view of, you know, how can we democratise... Um, theatre making and performance making and storytelling and actually the lived experience of communities and, and you know how do we how do we make that how do we take that away from people who are telling us what our culture is and that kind of stuff yeah um, but on the other hand in terms of stuff like impulse theatre and, and impulse impulse theatre that's theater the and, active uh, verb I was looking for impro and, and content impro there's also the whole dance tradition of it so which is where impulse where um, content impro comes from and as I'm going to get muddled with my timeline now but sort of 80s and 90s it's modern dance sort of thing of or breaking down the sort of formality of dance and, and making it more improvised so it's I've, I've sort of had a very I did a couple of workshops in it I did a couple of weeks of training in it but it's cool it's really cool it's sort of you're using body weight and um, and kind of connect you know, connections with people mm -hmm. these kind of verbal physical cues to kind of create Choreography, more or less, but it's all improvised. Mm. There was a bit of that in Left. Sure, Tom's definitely. show with definitely. the, yeah, the weight moving each other around. Stuff. Yeah, yep. definitely. Definitely. And Impulse stuff is kind of like the similar idea, but not as dance-based. So Impulse is really cool. It's, 
I don't really know the history of it. I mean, action theatre is one of the big kind of texts in it. And it kind of comes from, it almost kind of starts to blend with this more, um, how would you even describe it? Kind of like, it's almost like a kind of psychology of kind of, you know, that impulse, uh, sort of awareness training and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you're almost kind of trying to get to a level of meditative awareness and you're creating from that point. So it's almost a sort of Zen idea of stripping away um, outside influences and impulse and just going to your basic impulse of what you're, so, and, and it phys- physically is often where you start. So mm-hmm. I love it. It's one of my favorite things. And it's sort of, you often you'll see people kind of starting off with um, just very basic on the floor and then kind of following an impulse um, physically or, or verbally or whatever. And mm-hmm. you do it as an individual or you do it in big groups um, and you can create some really interesting stuff. Which is, and it's about that kind of training yourself to kind of just be aware of moment to moment awareness uh, of what you're, Next, I could say the word, but impulse is, yeah, and then allowing that to kind of bring something forth, and then following that thing, you know, and, mm. and then it's really interesting putting boundaries in that as well. So a lot of uh, techniques, and and the cool thing about it is, I think it's interesting because it can be used both as a performance tool, but also as a training tool, and you can use it as a training tool to inform other performance. Like I've done, I've done direct, I've directed shows where very, very traditional straight theatre. Mm-hmm. But if the actors are getting stuck and it's not going anywhere, you throw the scripts away and you go back to impulse work, you know? So Yeah, great. How would these two characters interact if they had no mm-hmm. words? But, you know, yeah. what is what do you want to show this person, you know? And then mm-hmm. you're getting back to an honest kind of representation of what's the core of core of what you're, you know, mm. trying to express. Um, so musically, someone who brought that kind of tradition in was Brian Eno. Sure. As a producer, he went crazy with that stuff for a long time. Yeah. And a lot of bands created very unusual albums out of him. Sure. It's very yeah. much a jazz kind of thing, you know, jazz yep. jamming. And watching, like, I've done Contact Impro Jam. They call them jams, Contact mm-hmm. Impro Jams, um, which is cool. We get people who have this shared vocabulary of, you mm-hmm. know, of weight sharing and lifting and that kind of stuff. And I'm really, really, you know, novice in it. Um, a jamature. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Yeah. But yeah, and they actually jam on like, physically together, which is really cool. Yeah, and impulse work is really good for ensemble building as well. A lot of stuff trying to tune into the group, tune into group sort of um, dynamics and that kind of stuff. And to bring us full circle to let go of your individualism in the service of mm. reacting to other people and picking up on social cues. Absolutely, absolutely. Huh. Yeah, cues are a huge part of it, you know. How, mm. do, how do you react to what people are giving you and how do you do that actually honestly like this? I sort of always thought I wanted to do kind of straight theatre acting and Part of me still does, but I sort of look at that now and I think it's such a huge skill and such an amazing skill, but that level of artifice that goes into some, you know, naturalistic acting just seems so different from what I'm used to, you know, and it's really hard to do both those things. It's really hard to kind of mm-hmm. have that level of character where it's actually, I'm just acting like I'm reacting to this or actually purely reacting is also very, very hard, you know? Yeah, um, definitely. They're both, they're both two ends. They're but, tied up with each other. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly mm. right. Yeah. So your next big gig uh, that you were telling me about before is you're going to be working, following on from Kids Killing Kids. Yeah. I wasn't involved in Kids Killing Kids, but I had the opportunity to do a workshop with, a playback theatre workshop with the Zipat Lewin guys. So playback theatre is another... Um, Zipat Lewin? Zipat Lewin. Zipat Lewin. The, the Filipino crew. Mm-hmm. Um, and they... We were having dinner, we were just chatting and I was saying how they're moving into some more community-based theatre in the next few years. I was like, oh, you must know, must know Playback. It's one of the kind of, the, one of the two or three really core kind of 
movements in community theatre in the last 20 years and as a, mm-hmm. as a as a philosophy and also as a technique, as a training technique, you know. Yep. They're like, oh, what's that? Um, well, come and I'll do a workshop. I'll give you a sort of one-day grounding in it. Cool. And it went really well. And so I'm going to go over there in January and do a, two, a two-week workshop with that because it's really – playback's great. It's sort of it's such a technique-based thing that you can kind of mm-hmm. – it'd be like sort of, you know, teaching someone – a new card game kind of thing and then that, hmm. that that's a way to kind of expand it but there's so much in it but then you play with each other for what you, so when you figure out the workshop you have two weeks right mm. so do you obviously you play it by ear because you're an impulse kind of guy mm. but do you spend the first couple of days just getting through the theory and the history or do you start by playing definitely I was, playback's kind of thing you you got to do it to to sort of show it kind of thing mm-hmm. um, learn by doing yeah absolutely it's it, well, it's interesting I don't, I, it's, there's so many so many kind of d- discrete skills you can kind of draw out and discrete kind of modes of performing and and forms of doing it. It's great because you can kind of simultaneously be teaching specific individual skills and forms while at the same time having a longer picture of kind of what are we really building here. We're building ensemble stuff. We're building kind of ideas about active listening and kind of sharing story. There's this fascinating kind of underlevel of playback, which is really about communication and, and validation of stories and that kind of stuff which isn't theatrical at all it's actually more of a kind of cultural social kind of um, group work and beautiful mm-hmm. kind of you know I consider it kind of good political work to make the world a better place you know on top of that is also explicit drama and theatrical skills mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting with these guys because they're they're theater makers they're not uh, it's, I went to Sri Lanka a couple of years ago and was teaching playback there for a couple of weeks and we taught two groups i was part of a huge international well not huge part of an international group of trainers working over there and i work with two groups one of whom was uh probably more predominant more predominant kind of fringy theater crews in colombo they were great really mm. really high level for what they did they were, they were organized the international theater festival in colombo and they were fantastic the other were a group of just like dudes like middle-aged people who hang out in the coast and had no training but liked to hang out together cool and what was amazing was seeing when you when you bring like playback because it definitely has it's this sort of weird marriage of like theatrical theatrical skills and needing that kind of level of stuff but also working better with more coming across more freshly and innocently not having that because it's actually just about communication and sharing and that kind of stuff okay um so the people who are more trained actually in some ways were harder to get on board what we were doing. The people had no training, no formal training whatsoever. Yep. They just reacted of, to what you were saying. And they kind of got it. They got the idea of we're just, okay, all you're doing is just trying to, it's like improving not for laughs, improving just mm. for kind of pure response, you know? I like, see. So the people who were trained were used to, to having a particular aim, exactly. to having a and purpose. And you were saying, forget the purpose, not follow even, the method. Definitely. And the purpose being to be good, to be skillful, to be to act well, to perform oh, well. You know, yeah, which is the I mean, it's the Western ideal, regardless of what mm, creative sphere you're in. Mm, I mean, exactly. that's the cultural. And it's it's one thing coming up as, as a teacher, you come up against constantly is we were talking about before kids who are trying to be academic and be smart when actually mm-hmm. that, that blocks you from just being logical and being sincere and getting it out that way, which is often the better way to do it. You know, if you just just approach it. You know, with common sense and with in- good intention and sincerity, you're going to do a better job than if you approach it going, I need to be excellent. I need to be perfect, you know. It's just, it's just not always the most useful. It can be a block, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so with all that in mind, it's been interesting. Really fascinating. I'm really looking forward to working with this Butler Wing guys in January because they're good, they're amazingly 
good theater makers there. They're, yeah, from what I saw in Kids Killing Kids, it was amazing stuff. They're very receptive and ready for this new kind of stuff. So inevitably, people who are listening to this who have never done anything before, myself included, mm. it will renew their motivation to get into this kind of thing. Mm. I mean, I'm going to go home and just Google straight away what, you know, who's in Northcote that yeah, I can sure. join. What's the best way to find something that's going to suit you? If there's so many different schools and there's so much stuff going on, do you just try it and see what sticks? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, like I said, I've been lucky in that I've just fell into different things, but at the same time, I think it's learning to be responsive and open to try new things is good. I always remember the idea that the advice that Cameron Thomas gave me, who's an amazingly beautiful man, he's only my age, but he's like a, he's an old guard of the Canberra Theatre scene now. He's just an incredibly um, talented guy. He's been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. He used to say, people come up to him all the time and say, I want to get into theatre. How do I get into theatre? How do I get into theatre? How do I get into the music scene? How do I get into that? Mm -hmm. He said, he, the first question would be, how many shows do you see a year? Uh -huh. And it says, oh, not much. That's the first step. You just go and consume as much as you can. And I think yeah. that's a really good advice. Like consuming as much as you can in a wide variety of stuff will give you a, not only a taste for it, but the opportunity to start making networks and connections. And I think that... Mm -hmm. And it starts to overflow. I mean, if you sure. listen... Yeah, if you if all you listen to for three months is blues, mm. the next time you pick up a guitar, mm. it's inevitable that you're going to try playing the blues. Absolutely. Melbourne's great because there are avenues in and people are pretty receptive, you know, to helping out like if people are wanting to you know get involved in that kind of stuff the, the big one is Cecil Street Studio in Fitzroy is a really good Cecil uh, Street Cecil Street Studio Cecil that's a, like mm -hmm. a long running kind of impro house and they kind of do workshops and that kind of stuff cool um, but Google I mean if you want to get involved in playback theatre you should talk to me and I can get you involved into a workshop that yeah. I, I run because it's really cool There'll be links galore to this on okay. the website and on Facebook and on Twitter Fantastic. and anywhere else I can put it. Um, but there's also a number of other playback organizations in, in Melbourne. And um, it's interesting, playback's interesting because it's so much of it's sort of not dependent on, but so much of it's kind of reactive to the people who are involved as well. So with the group I work with, Playback West, we are, we've always been sort of based in the west of Melbourne working with that community, you know, that, that kind of mm -hmm. that group of people. So it's multicultural. And it's One of the fastest growing and diver most diverse communities in the country at the moment. Mm, it's definitely. unbelievable how many people are moving I know. over crazy. there. I know. Yeah, I heard the figures the other day. Something like a city the size of Hobart moves to Melbourne every year. And 60 to 80% of those people are moving into the west of Melbourne. That's crazy. Yeah, and there's no infrastructure yet. So it'll be very interesting <laughs> to see how that happens over mm. the next... Yeah. Let's talk about it last night. Just watching the buildings going up, you know, since I've moved I've been there for three years now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, watching it just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. When you think about those numbers in terms of like, there's someone said to me at some point, there's a new primary school worth of kids moving to West Melbourne every month. Wow. How many primary schools can you build? Yeah, I know. Right? And unfortunately, we had this thing of building bigger and bigger and bigger primary schools, which is not necessarily the best way to do things. No, I mean, you were talking at the beginning of the podcast about teaching groups of four or five kids. Mm, which makes, it makes things... It makes for such a different experience. Lucky teachers are so underpaid. Mm. We can yeah, afford to hire more of them. Exactly. Like, yeah. yeah, much as I'm really jazzed about working full-time as a teacher next year, it's just like, that's just the reality of it, you know. You're going to work into a class with 35 kids maybe, you know, and, yep. and five different language groups. And, you know, like, oh, that's and, fascinating because I was in classes of 30 or 40 kids in Newcastle, but yeah. it was very homogenous sure. being in Newcastle. Yeah. I can't imagine how you deal with... Cultural differences cultural and backgrounds. Differences. and Yeah. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, coming from trauma and coming from you know, wars and that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. 
but I had a very inspiring, my last lecture last year, my fourth year of uni, a very inspiring woman who was a head of year six or head of English at the this school called Jinjira Primary, which is a kind of very multicultural primary school near where I live, who said, you know, I'm, I'm a year six teacher and I've got 75% boys in my class and I've got six different language groups and four different cultural groups and I have kids who've been kicked out of three different schools and I have kids from abuse and war-torn backgrounds and... Mm. If you're uh, finishing your, your studies as a teaching student and that doesn't make you at least somewhat excited, then like, you've got to ask yourself, what the hell are you doing in an education degree? And I was like, yeah, right on. All right, cool. turn it on its head. Mm, like, like, it sounds threatening, but that's... This is what you've been training for, yeah, right? Like, right? Where you should, like, it's like being a pro athlete. It's like, mm. look, did you want to go to the most stressful game in the world? Did you want to go to the World Cup? Yeah, or do you want to just it. go and have a kickabout? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it's, mm. it's um, you know, especially when you're young and fresh, you know. Wow, great line. Yeah, I thought it was really, really super inspiring. And and it was great because she she said, that we, she said, I was going to, you know, I've been asked to come and do this lecture for you guys. And my response to how to make the lecture, I think, sums up in some ways my approach to teaching. Because I, I first thing I do is ask my students, what should I tell a group of fourth year students about to become teachers, about how to become teachers? Like, uh-huh. I've been asked to tell a group of fourth year students how to be better teachers. Mm-hmm. Who better to ask than students? So she just gave them all... Um, little flip cameras and turn them yeah. away and say, go make, an, go make a lecture for fourth year students. And that was like the majority of what she said was from the students. It was no fantastic. way. Yeah, that's like, that's her approach. Ask the students, they're the experts, you know. Wow. Yeah. I'm doing a, it's working at high school now and that's the line that my, my boss keeps saying is, you know, you're the experts in your lives. We're just the facilitators and how to express that. Like, mm-hmm. not here to tell you what you know about how you live. It's, you know, um, working in communities, that's, thing to remind yourself you know so as we come towards the end of the podcast uh we're going to be recording some music afterwards yeah uh what's the story well it's actually it's an experiment you know and uh i think that one thing that's kind of been a bit of a constant is that experimenting you know i listened to sarah mm-hmm. sarah's podcast today and that of the platform you know yep i think that yeah being multidisciplinary is i prefer to like a, a, a Jack of all trades, master of none, you know, like yep. I think that I'm better at some things than others, but I'm also willing to have a go at most things. And yeah, I just, I really enjoy experimenting and trying new things and having a go and improvising, you know, it's that, that DIY attitude, that kind of punk attitude mixed with this kind of improvisation skills that I shouldn't not be allowed to, I shouldn't not be allowed to try anything, you know? Yeah. There's no, there's no reason to not exactly put yourself out there. So yeah, I started writing songs a couple of years ago and I've been going through better and worse, but I thought today what I'd try the first time ever is actually combining some music with some spoken word. So great. It's an experiment. I haven't done it before, but it'll be mm-hmm. tried for the first time in this room. Wow. Well, I'm really keen to hear it. And yeah. thanks so much. I could listen to you. Uh, there must be a half dozen topics in this podcast that I could take a full hour out of <laughs> and just run with. But uh, thanks so much for coming along, man. Oh, it's it was been really my pleasure. Great. It's been really great. Really fun. Thank you. Awesome. That's the show. Thanks heaps for listening. Let us know what you thought on Twitter at Long by the River or on Facebook or in person at the Darren Hanlon Show on July 2nd at Some Velvet Morning. Now let's listen to Max's song and then stick around for some delicious outtakes. So this is, I guess, an uh, experiment with a bit of a 
medley. I, I think that um, I wrote poetry for years before I started writing songs, and because I wanted to be a songwriter, a lot of the poetry I wrote took the form of lyrics, it took the form of like words that could easily be transplanted into songs. So yeah, a lot of the songs I've written have just lifted lifted poems and vice versa. So this is kind of a medley of putting the two things together in some ways, and some spoken word, some songs, and kind of um, just realizing that uh, a lot of the songs I have written uses the same chord structures and that kind of stuff. I try to be optimistic, but there are lies, damn lies and statistics. I tried to relax, I didn't want to startle her, zooming through the city halfway through a hangover. Felt my sick self kicked by the momentum of the great curve, fumbling through a shopping mall, halfway through a hamburger. Standover tactics linked theatrically to the concerns thematics and I turned off the interstate into a shopping mall. I went to a shopping mall and it made me wanna puke. I should have just walked away but the prices were too good to refuse. So I turned on the radio and to hear a little something new It broke my heart in two when the transmission started coming through So I left And I rode through the city of bad timing with a glass armada in full flight behind me and the streets were lined with exciting lightning and the ghost of my ex-wife looked on in silence. I met a fine time traveler from the future. He said, someday son, I'll sure be glad to meet you but for now I'm just out of my league here. And the ghost of my ex-wife suppressed laughter. And the world travelled by me in procession I charged them full price, no concession Cash through tight dimension Don't trust no one till the money is in the bank And I try to be optimistic But there are liars, damn liars and statistics And the headlines will get you right in the face You'll get your lion's share A snail's pace. But even so, I have got my heroes. I hope you got yours too. I burn all my notebooks, seem like the thing to do. What's the point of stories with no one to tell them to? And it makes sense to walk if your foot fits in the shoe. And if you see a man 
who's holding up his own do not take it for granted and when a sister tells you things are tough all over I hope you'll understand it I hope you'll understand it try to keep ourselves busy oh how we try to keep ourselves amused i read books ride my bike and watch the telly i feel so optimistic devastated and confused to do a single good thing tried to forge the universe of mood ring I cried a smile beneath the falling ceiling and the ghost of my ex-wife shook her head I stemmed a tide of insincere intentions with sandbag salt and archaic inventions I saw some things I do not care to mention And the ghost of my ex-wife expressed pity And the world smiled glibly in concession Charged them full, charged them full price for admission To my ascension, kept things clean confidential and I swear that was exactly how it went I try to be optimistic there are lies Damn lies and statistics. So I say you insist on a little bit of bliss. 
a kiss, a tryst, a feeling that persists, the dangling of a key, or the angling of a neckline, some time with your prime mate, a bit of an escape from lives spent living in straight lines, these perfect thoughts given pretty little lives, born and died between the sheets and the stars, nurtured and cherished and held so tight. I can't stand to face the world tomorrow but if you lead you know I'm gonna follow and at least we could say we got up in the morning said goodbye to the sleep we're wrenched from I try to be optimistic there are lies damn lies and statistics headlines Catch you right in the face, you get your lion's share at a snail's pace. There's something to be said for a deep understanding of the particular pile of shit that you stand in. Anyone can get used to the odour. Promise to clean before you come over. I'll shine my shoes and I'll polish my spectacles. I never thought too hard about what was respectable. That I try to be optimistic. There are lies, damn lies and statistics. This microphone just keeps sliding down, but that's okay. Yeah. Do you ever get animated and like speak more loudly? Do I ever? Just to check that. Sure, yeah, sure. I, I, my, my general speaking tone is like a sort of reserved mumble, so feel free to tell me to speak properly because once I get into conversation, I kind of...
Well, yeah. we dyed his hair blue, actually. Yeah. He was like, that's it. I'm doing it. Yeah. I need you to bleach my hair. We had to bleach it four times to just to <laughs> get any color because his hair is like a, uh, like an, what's the iron thing you use to scrub all your pots and pans? And that blue hair, he just ceased to be a person. Yeah, sure. And at work and at home, mm. he was always a blue hair guy. Mm. And people started referring to me as friend of blue hair guy. <laughs> and that hurt me. I can't imagine what yeah. it's like being him. You know, the, we, we Germans aren't all smiles and sunshine. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, the first time you said it, I didn't understand what you said. Yeah, that's right. cool. I can edit whatever I want. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, that's really that's good. because I started saying it and I had this like instant voice in my head that's like, you're making a Simpsons reference out loud. Stop it. Stop it. Like that's, it, it's not 1998 <laughs> anymore, you know, and just like. Checkmate. <laughs> who's, the, who's just the guitar guy mm. that isn't classical? And I. John Faye. There are so many people I could have thought of to say. Mm. Did you say John Faye? Mm. Oh, he's the man, dude. What a mm. recommend. Oh, that's so good. No, mm. I said Santana. Good evening, and welcome to Wait Long by the River, the, <laughs> the podcast where we whack the mic stand as hard as we can. I don't want to caper from table to, I would caper from table to table singing almost anything. Mm. Or ladder. Ladder or quieter or all of them. Awesome. Now, if you're relaxed in the chair and the mic was sort of in front of you. Yeah. And you're comfy. Is this too far away? Max is here. Hey, good. I'll get it. Great, were you testing? 